Hello, and welcome to episode 84 of the Big Rhetorical Podcast. I'm your host, Charles Woods. On today's episode of the podcast, I talked to Dr. Amber Buck. When I teach students about particular technologies and composing tools, I emphasize the rhetorical components more than the, how do I do this particular thing? Because it's this, the technology and the software is gonna change, right? And I think that's one of the thing about, about our heuristic, but then I'll, I'm thinking about other kind of ethical guidelines that function based kind of on heuristics, like the Association of Internet Researchers, inter, um, eth- internet ethics research guidelines. Um, They've revised those three times now, but that's over 20 some years. So um, they they also provide a kind of heuristic based framework that asks Mm -hmm. researchers to take take some of these ethical questions, keep those in mind in a kind of more broad way. And Dr. Devin Ralston. We talk about in the articles, some of what Twitter's policies say versus maybe like what people's actions are with some of those policies. I think that it's not, it's not, I don't think it's an easy kind of task probably. And each platform is trying to do something a little bit different and users are kind of doing them and manipulating them in different ways. I definitely still think that there's much more monetizing of it going on than than like most users probably want to know about or kind of consider or think about. About their article, I didn't sign up for your research study, The Ethics of Using Public Data, that was included in the special issue of Computers and Composition called Rhetorics of Data, Collection, Consent, and Critical Digital Literacies, edited by Les Hutchinson Campos and Mariah Novotny. You'll hear more from Amber and Devin in a bit, but first, I want to direct your attention to an opportunity to join the editorial collective of the Journal of Interactive Technology and Pedagogy. The Journal of Interactive Technology and Pedagogy seeks new members to join their editorial collective. They invite applications from graduate students, scholars, and practitioners in all fields who critically and creatively engage with digital technology in their teaching learning, and research. They will be appointing three graduate student members and one non-student member, like a faculty, staff, or practitioner. This is an opportunity to gain experience and mentorship in academic editorship. Prior experience in publishing is not necessary. Editorial collective members should plan to make a minimum of a two-year commitment to work on the journal. Each EC member is expected to attend regular editorial collective meetings, either in person or remotely. Participate in ongoing editorial and operating discussions on the JITP's private group site on the CUNY Academic Commons. Maintain membership in at least one committee and participate in discussions and tasks central to that committee. Possibly review one or two submissions to the journal per year, in addition to other responsibilities. If you are interested in joining the editorial collective of the Journal 
of interactive technology and pedagogy. Email their managing editor at admin at jitpedagogy.org and include the following materials. A brief statement of interest, no more than 500 words, describing why you would like to join the collective, what skills and experiences you would bring, and your current program of study, and a current CV. The deadline for applications is November 19. In their article, I didn't sign up for your research study, The Ethics of Using Public Data, Doctors Buck and Ralston explain that writing researchers should take a careful approach to public data use based on an ethical understanding of privacy and public information. Their article proposes a heuristic for using and publishing public data that can assist scholars in remaining reflective, reflexive, and purposeful when studying digital platforms. Devin Ralston grew up along the Gulf Coast of Alabama and received her undergraduate and master's degrees from the University of South Alabama. She received her PhD in rhetoric and composition with a focus on new media studies and professional writing in 2008 from Illinois State University. At Winthrop, she is an associate professor and director of the Writing Center, where she teaches courses in composition, rhetorical theory, professional writing, and digital rhetorics. Amber Buck completed her Ph.D. in English and Writing Studies at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign in 2012. Her research interests include digital literacies, multimodal composition, new media and identity, and social media. Amber is the social media and visibility editor for Computers and Composition Digital Press. You can also find her at www.amberbuck.net. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Dr. Amber Buck and Dr. Devin Ralston. Let's start with you, you Amber. What's your name, your title, your institution, and your role there? Uh, my name is Amber Buck. I'm an assistant professor of English at the University of Alabama. Um, I uh, am one of the core faculty members of our Composition, Rhetoric, and English Studies graduate program, and I also um, am the currently the coordinator of that graduate program. Um, I'm Devin Ralston. I'm an associate professor at Winthrop University in Rock Hill, South Carolina, where I teach composition and rhetoric uh, writing courses and also direct the University Writing Center. Excellent. So you're at two different places, two different spaces, but you worked on an article together. Today, you're joining me to talk about your article. I didn't sign up for your research study, the ethics of using public data in a special issue of Computers and Composition that was titled Rhetorics of Data, Collection, Consent, and Critical Digital Literacies, edited by Les Hutchinson Campos and Maria Novotny. I want to start first with a question about how this article began. It's Genesis. Where did this article come from? I'm also interested in how Amber remembers the genesis of this. And I've been trying to rack my brain to remember exactly which computers and writing conference where we were 
working with graduate students and we were at the same table. And through our discussion with the graduate students and about our work, there was a recognition that we were interested in some of the same things, um, particularly regarding ethics and digital research. And I was presenting at that conference, maybe I think it was St. John's Fisher uh, is where we were, but I'm not 100% sure. Um, And uh, I was presenting at that conference on the difficulty that I had with continuing with some research that I wanted to complete because I felt that ethically I didn't really have a good handle on how to proceed. Um, There was some research that I wanted to do, but it was part of a kind of closed community. It wasn't public data. And I was part of this group, but then I would have had to like disclose that I was a researcher, which would have like, that's not how I had joined that group. Anyway, there were some complexities that led to me sort of abandoning a research idea. And I was presenting on that at the Computers and Writing Conference and Amber and I got to talking and sort of realized that we were interested in or and frustrated by what was kind of currently available to us in terms of how to proceed in some of these, with some of these kinds of questions that weren't really cut and dried, which a lot of the research at the time in sort of digital, you know, how to do digital research, the methods and scholarship that were available just weren't cutting like some of the stuff we wanted to do. Yeah, and I'll, I'll just pick up from there and add that um, we developed a proposal for actually for a different project. It was an edited collection um, on research on internet research ethics that was published by some people um, not in rhetoric and composition who um, are are involved with the Association of Internet Researchers group um, and our proposal was was rejected <laughs> it was not accepted for the edited collection so we kind of we, we were kind of like oh okay well that didn't work out but we should still we should still think about doing doing this so um, when this call when uh, Lesson Mariah's call came out, um, it seemed like the perfect opportunity for us to pick the project back up again. So we did edit the proposal quite a bit. It had a different kind of focus um, this time, but um, but that's kind of where it where it started from. What what is the basic premise or, or, or argument of your article? And why is this important? So the the main argument of the article is that public data isn't necessarily public. So it's important to think about what, how you use that data um, is, is, I guess, the, the really short um, condensed description um, that, uh, you know, sometimes with, with internet research, it seems like, well, it's available publicly online that therefore I can collect it and study that data. Right. But um Internet users have, as as research has has shown, have really complicated um, ideas about what what privacy is, like what what is public and what is private, and who they're actually directing um, a particular message to, right? And the the additional concern with um, publishing data in as academic research is that that 
that work can sometimes take that data outside of its originally shared context into other contexts that might be more searchable by search engines, um, all of those kinds of things. So in terms of both collecting the data and um, featuring it in publication, there are a lot of kind of ethical things to think through. So that that's those are kind of the things that we wanted to, to draw attention to. Yeah, and I would say that the... Um you know, beginning of our title, I didn't sign up for your research study, really shows where we were coming from with that notion that the people who we end up researching, like the context for them when they write a tweet or share a photo or put, you know, comment on a blog, their intention, that context is not related to you know, like it's a moment uh, in time and then there'll be a way that a researcher kind of picks that up and makes a different kind of meaning or sense from it. And we wanted to acknowledge, we really wanted to acknowledge that as Amber is saying, that, that, that the notions of privacy can be much more complex than, oh, well, it was publicly available or I could scrape it, you know, using a tool. Um, so that's actually one of the things that I really appreciated about the article, right? Um, is that you all are, are directly contending with the nature of what is public and what is private. And as you explain this binary approach, it isn't accurate for, way, for the way that most users think about privacy, right? So how should users think about digital privacy? Um, well, our article draws extensively from... Um, Ellis Marwick and Dana Boyd's argument about networked privacy. So that's that, you know, it's not, as, as we were discussing, privacy is not uh, an on-off switch, right? In terms of some of, some of, some social media platforms set it up that way, right? Like Instagram and Twitter, you're either, you have a, either have a public account or a private account. Facebook does that has different gradations of that kind of that same kind of thing. Right. But, um, uh, but really um, privacy is, is negotiated between yourself and the people that you're connected to. Right. Um, So that uh, some of your, who who tags you in photos, um, those, those spread in different ways to people that you don't know perhaps. Right. Um, So uh, not only, the, the people that you're connected to have the ability of perhaps sharing your data in other contexts, but then also um, they can, uh, in lots of different ways, people can screenshot or take your, um, a lot of your social media data and, and, and spread it as well. Right. So, um, uh, so we draw mostly from Boyd and Marwick to talk about how, um, privacy, online privacy is instead kind of a, it is, is always a negotiation between you and the other people that you're connected to in online spaces and the platforms themselves and their own policies. Right. I mean, I was, I was particularly thinking about the, the notion of the screenshot as like, I was really thinking a lot about that. Um, even when I talked to my students about email, um, and like internal audiences and things like that, you know, it's like, email is probably relatively insecure because you don't know who can forward that message on or 
you know, when you're texting or again, like with Snapchat with things that are supposed to be disappear, that are supposed to disappear. I mean, I think it's very clear that that doesn't happen. And so, yeah, there's, there's an assumed trust built within the network of people that you're communicating with. And that negotiation is really important. And I do often think that is missed sometimes, um, not just with researchers kind of collecting the data, but the meaning that they're making from it as well. And so I think it is important to see privacy as contextual as well as right negotiated. And I think that users may not articulate it in those terms, but the work that they're doing, they're sharing with, like you can do some adjustments. Like I'm just gonna share this with close friends, like on an individual post or a picture or something like that. And so there are ways that individuals are kind of tending to their privacy on a post by post basis as well. So y'all are mentioning some platforms and Amber mentioned what I think is, is, is incredibly important policies. Do you all have like a, a way of thinking about which platforms are protecting users more so than others? Or are they all just really, really bad at it? Uh, well, I haven't had a chance to read the entire Wall Street Journal series from <laughs> the whistleblower that came out this week on Facebook and Instagram. Right. Um, but it's clear that protecting users' data is just not the aim of any of these platforms, right? That it's, you know, they their business model directly contradicts that um that imp- that uh project that you're talking about. So there there isn't any one that I know of that's that's particularly better or worse. You know, there was that um there have been a couple of platforms developed with with that kind of privacy concern in mind. I can't remember the name of the one that uh that was from a few years ago. Um anyway Um, I do think it's, I mean, and I will say like, not to, I mean, you know, we can villainize platforms that's, you know, okay too, I guess. But um, because I think that there's probably some pretty, you know, monetizing people's data, uh, not great. But uh, I would also say it's probably relatively challenging for some of the platforms. I do think one of the things that happens as platforms sort of grow, um, is that they have to constantly think about and like update policies. And so I think it is a challenge for different platforms and they may care more or less about it at different times. And I think um, we talk about in the articles, some of what Twitter's policies say versus maybe like what people's actions are with with some of those policies. Um, So I think that, it's not, it's not, I don't think it's an easy kind of task, probably. Um, and each platform is trying to do something a little bit different and users are kind of doing them and manipulating them in different ways. Um, but yeah, I don't think, I definitely still think that there's much more monetizing of it going on than is, than, than like most users probably want to know about or kind of consider or think about. Um, I just I just think about the amount of data that's just, floating around about me when I like swipe my user card at the grocery store, you know, and I'll get like special coupons, which is nice because you're like, oh, those are the eggs that I buy. But at the same time, it's kind of creepy that like somebody knows that and send like, you know, and the grocery store sends me coupons for it. 
And so that kind of thing is happening online with our networks, with, I mean, you know, all this kind of stuff, right? That, that you don't even know or completely kind of follow. So not it's not even that re- readers aren't like reading the policies. I mean, think some of Twitter's FAQ about privacy is a little easier to manage than some of the other policies, but still you have to seek it out specifically. And it would probably only come up if you were trying to get someone to take something down or you wanted to make a complaint. Um, So yeah, I think it's a tough area for like the platforms to kind of get into and only when sort of legal battles come up or other kinds of issues are, are they forced to really acknowledge what's happening. The um, platform that I was referencing is called Diaspora. I don't know if it still exists. Mm. Um, Diaspora was um, a, was built particularly with user privacy in mind, where they didn't own your data. Um, you did. It was part of their terms of service, and it had something to do with their servers. Um, uh, but I don't know. I don't know if they they're still they're still around. Um, but pointing to um, but just commenting also on um, Devin's point about uh, kind of privacy and surveillance issues kind of beyond social media platforms um, in terms of tracking in other kinds of ways. I think, you know, some people in the field of writing studies have started to, to do, I think, really good work on, on, ta- on talking about how those, the implications of those things impact, you, you know, fit with, um, uh, you know, fit along disparities of race and class too, right? Like Chris Gilliard, um, who, uh, you know, did a keynote at Computers and Writing recently um, has has done excellent work really pointing out how, um, you know, it's one thing for, for people to track you at the, your purchases at the grocery store, but completely another for facial recognition programs to, um, you know, decide that you're a criminal in some context, mm-hmm. right? And those, those fit with, um, right along the lines of racial disparities, right? So um, uh, in terms of, in terms of privacy and surveillance, um, a lot of these systems kind of reproduce old um, hierarchies. Yeah. And I think that's part of the kind of context and, you know, expectations sometimes of how different users are going to feel differently about privacy and their expectations of it across platforms or across their networks. More after this. Would you like to join Charles in the Big Rhetorical Podcast? The podcast is booking for next season now. The Big Rhetorical Podcast offers participants the opportunity to contribute to ongoing conversations within our disciplines and beyond. This record of conversations eventually will be a digital archive with the potential to impact the knowledge making in rhetoric, writing studies, and technical communication, as well as adjacent fields. Do you have a new book coming out? Are you hitting the job market this cycle? The Big Rhetorical Podcast wants to talk to you. The Big Rhetorical Podcast core ideals are similar to a community-based writing project with an emphasis on inclusivity and localizing knowledge and in strengthening relationships among peers. Make sure to check out our back catalog of episodes as well as listen to our new podcast each week wherever you listen to your podcast. 
If you have questions about The Big Rhetorical Podcast, please submit a form at the website www.thebigrhetoricalpodcast.weebly.com. You can also find The Big Rhetorical Podcast on Twitter at The Big Ret. Follow the podcast on Facebook or email us at thebigrhetorical at gmail.com. Welcome back. My next question is right along these lines. In your article, you write, for BIPOC concerns about privacy have high stakes. And you direct our attention to the work of Simone Brown and the hashtag, hashtag Black in the Ivory. Certainly, I agree with you. But what are some of the reasons and evidence in your article to support this? And how do we navigate these complexities as instructors working with, uh, I'm sorry, working with students and or the data of students? Yeah, I think um, so. One of the reasons we really wanted to highlight highlight that is because, like I was saying about right, the different sort of contexts and expectations, and because um, Black scholars, Indigenous scholars, people of color um, have it hasn't gone well for often for participants to be in research studies when they are minorities or when they are like, you know, there's a really long history of not being treated well or having scholarship kind of um, ripped off of them, quite frankly. Um, And so we wanted to attend to, attend to those ideas and acknowledge that that's a pretty uh, unfortunately, a really long history of being taken advantage of um, in many, many ways as a participant or as a subject of study. Um, and so when one of the things with um, the Black and the Ivory piece is that it meant, right, that hashtag was a way for a network work of people to share their experiences. That was the intention, right? When we think about kind of expectations and why am I participating, the like intention of that was about the shared experience. And then researchers, you know, kind of started grabbing at that information and then it becomes decontextualized and the meaning gets made by someone else, not the person who was sort of originally tweeting. And so I think that's a, that was a really good example of how appropriative sometimes this, the research could be and why we really, it, I think it helps inform the exigency as well of like what we were trying to work at, not just complicating these ideas, but show those kind of stakes and to really ask people to think through some of these questions that are difficult questions to answer sometimes and complicate your research, but they're so crucially important because we have seen what the history of not asking those questions leads to. And um, yeah, just just to add to that, um, there, as Devin discussed, um, you know, multiply marginalized people are often you know, there's a long history of their communities being researched by people from outside of their communities, right? We're not part of that. And um, 
what your kind of as a researcher, one's kind of positionality within or outside of that community um, is something that should be really taken into account when you're um, when you're conducting research. And the um, the the black and the ivory hashtag was not only a current a recent example, but something that we thought would kind of lay out the stakes for readers pretty clearly in the sense that like, um, uh, you know, um, multiply marginalized people online are often writing to more than one community at a time, right? Um, but um, so the Black and the Ivory hashtag had a very specific focus within um, uh, of Black academics sharing their experience, right? Um, Christina Cedillo has an article in the new um, Privacy Matters edited collection um, that uh, that Les Hutchinson did with us day back um, that talks about how um, scholars of color in particular are really visible in online spaces. Um, and that hashtag, I think, um, demonstrates that, you know, um, within a particular context, the tweets had uh, one one purpose, but for, for someone collecting those tweets and then potentially publishing them, they, they would, you know, move to a completely different context that had different kinds of stakes, right? Because people were discussing in terms of their graduate, graduate student experiences or their employment situations um, that have, uh, you know, potential high stakes and repercussions for, for people in different ways, right? All right. Devin, you mentioned Twitter earlier, and this question isn't specifically for you, but a bit of your article or you all's article focuses on Twitter and the tools available to grab data from that platform. Why did you all focus on Twitter and why is understanding the ways in which they preserve user privacy important? I mean, I, th I think one of the things is because there are so many tools available for getting data from Twitter, particularly large amounts of data, you know, at once. Um, and so just looking at that trend uh, from sort of scholarship, from research, from, you know, knowing that, I think we wanted to make sure that we were attending to that. And I also think because it um, is so easy to search hashtags um, through Twitter and, and through some of the other, um, you know, just kind of features of that platform, I, we thought that that would be important to to, you know, examine uh, kind of what, what is happening there with all of those sorts of tools and these, and also for researchers, it's kind of, um, you know, like, what are you kind of agreeing to in using these tools? If it's a third party kind of, like, right. things get really weirdly complicated when you're looking at terms of service. And if you're violating, I think, even though Twitter has opened API a bit for those tools, there are other ways that using a third-party tool to kind of scrape the data is also violating some of Twitter's privacy kind of policies. And we talk about the complexities of that in the article as well, um, because it's, it's probably an issue that as researchers, you're may not be at the forefront of your mind uh, uh, in terms of that. And I remembered wanting to do research and feeling or wanting to kind of like pull a lot of information at one time and feeling a little out of depth because I thought like oh my gosh I have to like learn code I've got to kind of figure you know there's a lot of 
that that goes into it. And then you find, oh no, maybe there are some tools available and you're not really kind of thinking through um, how that complicates surveillance or notions of privacy or the or the work. How does that mediate the context of, especially if you're pulling like a really big data set um, and then trying to kind of make some meaning out of it? You know, I think those, those third-party tools that Devin is talking about you know, they work with Twitter's API. So that's that there's more research been done on Twitter, even though the user numbers are smaller than something like Facebook, just because it's, it's there, it's available. Right. And so that's also part, part of why we focus there. In your article, y'all propose a heuristic for writing researchers uh, in order to consider the ethical implications of using public data in their research. Walk us through this multi-pronged approach, which features a series of ethical questions. So the first question asks uh, people to consider whether, what are you studying, discourse or people, right? So um, part of what we started with was sometimes um, people will, call researchers will collect um, an, an amount of um tweets or blog posts or other kind of, of content that's that's available publicly online um, because they're studying discourse in some kind of way, right? So it, that, um, so our first uh, question really asks researchers to kind of think through, so are you interested in the language or are you interested in the people behind it, right? And our, our contention is, is that if you're, if you're actually studying the individuals and not the, the language specifically, that, um, that you'll have to have further, you'll have to consider other kinds of ethical things, including informed consent in some kind of way, right? Um, the second question says, who are you reaching? And we broke that down into communities or individual influencers, right? So are you study? this is kind of about boundaries of your study. So are you studying community, a, a particular online community, right? And in that case, like, you'd have to gain entry to that community somehow, right? To uh, announce your yourself, um, what kind, what kinds of, uh, um, you know, how, how to go about introducing yourself and the and your presence in their community as part of your potential research project, right? If you're studying individual influencers, um, if you're studying individuals within a, that community, um, you know, contacting in users individually before analyzing public posts or including those published accounts in that in the research is it's something we we recommended in the article. Um, so beyond kind of thinking about are you looking at an online community or are you looking at individual people online? Um, what are you collecting? Right? Are you are you collecting text? Are you collecting images? Um, how much how much and in what kinds of metadata are you collecting? So. Um, you'll have to think through uh, issues of kind of like storage. Um, and then, um, you know, are you going to, how are you going to make that, or are you going to make that data anonymous? What, what are you going to collect for your own use? And what are you going to um, make part of your publication, right? Whether it's like a data set that you're mm -hmm. announcing um, for, uh, a data set that you're sharing with other researchers or just including in your publication, right? Um, 
then we have a more specific question that's, that is also about, it just says, what are your studies boundaries, right? So that's also about bounding your study. So are you, are you, if we're thinking about, like we were talking earlier about privacy being networked, you know, are you, are you studying an individual or their network or a network, right? So one um, issue that I ran into in some of the research that I've done before is that I've always been studying individual social media users, but what do I do if I'm looking at a post, like a Facebook post, and there are people commenting on it who have no idea that I'm doing this study, like the individual has, the individual who posted it has and signed a consent form and we had interviews, but their friends who commented on the post don't, right? So um, thinking through like, I should, should I include their, um, their comments in my analysis or, or not and how, right? Um, are some questions. And, and that is something too that I think, right, that IRB doesn't cover those kinds of questions. Like our, I think, you know, one of the guiding, I think the thing that guides most of our principles is working through the IRB, which quite frankly, we point out the problems with that. And it's just, it doesn't cover, it doesn't really cover these kinds of issues, right? So if Amber has informed consent of an individual, the IRB is like, okay, great, right? Because here's the form, they signed, it's fine. But these other kinds of questions that you have to grapple with as a researcher, or we argue you should be grappling with as a researcher, aren't covered by things like the Institutional Review Board. It's just not part. And I think because that has to have such a large scope and they're really concerned about harming people psychologically and physically, that some we kind of as digital researchers slip under that radar sometimes because of this notion of kind of the public um or if you're doing interviews or those kinds of things but they don't take these other like the idea of network privacy or like amber's talking about like threaded comments and things like that into consideration so the heuristic is really meant to try to fill in some of these gaps uh for you know for the field for ourselves the next question asks, are you complying with all the terms of service, including tools being used? So um, that's kind of thinking through some of the things that Devin was discussing earlier, you know, data, data collection through, are you using scrape, third-party scrapers? Um, are they, um, do they comply with, um, with the terms of service for the platform that you're using? Um, you know, what kinds of, uh, what kind of, what kinds of ethical or issues are, are involved in um, you actually collecting the data, right? Um, then the next question says, what about ephemerality? Um, so that's to kind of think through, oftentimes um, social media works where, where people respond pretty spontaneously, right? Um, but uh, unless it's like a Snapchat or an or an Instagram stories kind of situation, um, that data is preserved, well, somewhat publicly on online over time, right? So um, just being aware that, uh, that that data, you know, may was a snapshot of a particular moment and that that comment or person might, might not still have that same response later, right? Um, and we can see that, we can see that some when people go back to like, you know, bring up old tweets from celebrities and or other public figures and don't really 
allow to imagine that like an evolution of someone's kind of thought process could grow or move or change. I mean, that's a kind of extreme example, um, but that could potentially happen where you're taking a moment in time. And again, I keep saying this, but like as researchers, we're making meaning We're we're like, if you're kind of collecting data and sort of you're working to make some meaning out of like the text that you see or whatever it is you're trying to kind of prove or point out, And that could just be like so far removed from like a person's real moment in time. Like the ephemeral quality, once preserved, lose it, you might lose something in translation. So I think it's important to at least acknowledge that perhaps participating, liking something or making a really quick comment maybe was meant to be more ephemeral than than the user first anticipated. The next question asked, is there an opportunity for participants to respond to your analysis? So um, how are you, are, if you've kind of negotiated some kind of informed consent with, with um, the people that you're studying, um, how are you, are you going to go back to those people or a particular online community and um, provide an opportunity for them to kind of respond to your um for your analysis, to your analysis, right? Um, is your view of, is their view of the situation different from yours, right? Um, taking their um, perspective into account can be helpful um, and crucial too. So the next one asks about um, whether, like what kind of context, are, are have you gotten a, a full view of the, of the, I guess, content that you're collecting, right? So um, it asks, how are you representing context of circulating information? Um, so uh, if, you're col- if you're looking at a particular hashtag, people may have used alternate publication or misspelled hashtags, or there may, may be other platform constraints that with the third-party tool you used or whatever that might limit um, the view that you're that you're seeing of that of that data so um you, you know is this kind of represent if this is this representative of an entire conversation online that kind of thing i think that one also you know asks you to the, the heuristic is meant for you to kind of think through these questions obviously before you start the research and so that that question about circulating context and circulating context is like, how do you set up whatever tool you're using or how are you setting up parameters of your research to make sure that you are not leaving leaving out the, you know, um, the alternative spelling of something or misspelling or you know, just kind of thinking of all the different ways that these, these conversations or comments or commentary might circulate. So it's kind of how do you take into, how do you account for all of those different possibilities, which can be difficult to imagine that, but you could miss something important um, if you're not thinking about what are the parameters of how the information circulates and, you know, how can you kind of think through some of those before, like, you know, you start actually doing the data collection. And the last question asks about how how and in what forms um, the data that you collected might end up in what you publish from it, right? It asks, how are you representing participants and their data? Um, Are you using screenshots 
are you paraphrasing tweets? Are you presenting them verbatim, for example? Um, can can things come up in Google searches? Um, this is especially important for uh, you know any kind of confidential information, or if you're researching um, you know communities that have been um, you know subject to harassment in online spaces, for example. Um, it, it, and, and that also kind of changes um, with the publication that you might be working with, right? If, if it's an open access publication, um, that material might be more accessible through to people from outside of the academic community, for example, than um, something behind a, the paywall of, a, of another journal. So, you, you know, the, that kind of asks um, to think through how you might maintain confidentiality and protect participant data um, in a variety of different ways uh, when you publish that work. Near the end of your article, you make the case for data literacy as a crucial component for researching online interactions and digital platforms. How do we contend with strategically integrating data literacy when the digital landscape is constantly evolving and what users consider public and private is changing with the same persistent fluidity? I mean, honestly, I would say, I do think going through the heuristic gets you a little bit closer, like can, can get you close to that maybe, or at least thinking through and imagining some of it. Um, but yeah, it is, it is, it is definitely a challenge to cons constantly consider and reconsider how different platforms, different contexts, right? Different, um, different students, different users, uh, are all working through the land, the digital landscape in a different way, and that their notions are of privacy and of what is public does, you know, is a really fluid. I, I think it's important to even acknowledge that it is a fluid and then not fixed thing. And it could change from platform to platform, from generation to generation you know, from community to community. And I'm not sure that we've like collectively as researchers been able to, you know, maneuver and, and kind of think through those negotiations. When I teach students about particular technologies and composing tools, I emphasize the rhetorical components more than the, how do I do this particular thing? Because it's this, the technology and the software is gonna change, right? And I think that's one of the thing about, about our heuristic, but then I'll, I'm thinking about other kind of ethical guidelines that function based kind of on heuristics, like the Association of Internet Researchers, inter, um, eth internet ethics research guidelines. Um, they've revised those three times now, but that's over 20 some years. So um, they, they also provide a kind of heuristic based framework that asks mm -hmm. researchers to take, um, to take some of these ethical questions involved um, 
take some of these ethical questions, keep those in mind um, in a kind of more broad way because it's hard to kind of account for all these different technologies, right? Let's kind of put the landing gear down with a couple more questions. What do you hope readers take up and take away from your article? What's the next step for scholars who want to build upon and extend your work? I mean, I hope that they take the, I, I think it would be amazing to see someone take the heuristic and apply it to research that they want to do or apply it to a research process and then publish or present on that. Like not necessarily, right? Like how did that work? Like how did the heuristic, work for you as thinking through that kind of process, right? Um, that, I think that would be a really great sort of next step in, in the process uh, to, to in, in terms of how do, these, how do these questions make you rethink like decisions, research decisions, and what did that, what does the process help you do. I mean, I think, as I mentioned really early uh, in the conversation, for me, this work was really born out of frustration. Like, how do I navigate this? Like, I, if I want to work ethically in this arena, what is my way forward? And so, to, you know, working through all of the notions of privacy that we worked through, trying to acknowledge the different stakes and hopefully we proved like the need for the heuristic. Um, hopefully it's helpful. I want, I want readers to take away the heuristic and apply it and then tell me, tell us what happens. I would second that. I think, um, I mean, going through the questions, you can see that they're pretty broad and leave and, and give, give people a bit of guidance, uh, but they can, I think they can be refined in lots of different ways, right? So I'd be interested to see and how, how someone kind of used it um, as a framework and, and especially for different kinds of platforms and technologies. You know, we, we talked about using Twitter, but there, there are lots of different um, yeah. um, platforms or online environments that people might study. So um, how does it work with, uh, with a particular research situation? Um, and what are like other questions that came up that we didn't think about, you know, um, yeah. specific to a particular platform or, or just, or not. To study these platforms, they must be up and they must be running. <laughs> and yesterday, Facebook was not up and not running. So you all came to talk about your article. Tangential to your article is certainly Facebook down. This is going to come out in a couple of weeks. Do you all want an opportunity for some early musings in rhetoric and composition about the impact of October 4th and Facebook down? Um, the only first, first, I would say that, uh, part of me was like, oh, someone finally turned Facebook off. Maybe we'll just. <laughs> this is for the better. <laughs> Maybe. But, um, you know, I have some friends in Colombia and um, along with Facebook, there was WhatsApp, which right. is, I mean, used 
so much in Latin America um, and other places and for people in the U.S. to connect with people in, um, you know, families and communities and other places. And so uh, this is, you know, it's not it's not as easy to, you know, people are always kind of talking about like social media detoxes or stepping away or it's not so easy to extract yourself from these particular services. And when they become integrated within um, you know, the cellular service, like with phone carriers in particular right. countries, you know, they really do become part of the infrastructure as a utility. And so, um, you know, just opting out, opting out is not possible in a lot of contexts. And so I think we, you know, it's clear that Facebook can't regulate itself and it needs to be regulated. Um, but it, I mean, you know, my own personal opinion is it's it's way past time for us to think about these platforms as utilities that need some public oversight. I really appreciated once the once it came back, like once um, some of the social media came back, the instant memes. I mean, it was so it it when I was thinking about like text circulating and the, the speed of that. So I don't know how long. And also another really funny thing that happened is I said, oh, it, like the, it all went down. Like I had no idea. I was like working and meeting with students yesterday and teaching and doing things. And I had no clue that it like that social media had been down for however long. Um, but it was instantaneous when, when I turned, when I went back to Instagram, there were just, memes upon memes upon memes already about it and so the speed at w- with which I guess we can sort of make fun of ourselves and our addictions to social media and the problems with all of that um so some of the memes like pointed out the problem with you know that kind of attachment or talked about you know what influencers might have done with their time that they weren't you know behind you know in front of the screen um, so I thought that that was sort of a, an interesting aspect of it, that it was memed almost instantly. But then you couldn't post the meme because it was down. <laughs> it was also interesting to see, um, just thinking about what you're saying, Devin, people who would preface their Twitter posts with like, I this is for Instagram, for my Instagram audience, but I can't post it there. So you get my dog pics for today. Or, um, yeah. you know, like people acknowledging that like, I use Twitter as a platform for something different than what right. I would, but because I I want to post this dog picture, I'm going to put it here because yeah. I can't put it on Instagram. Yeah. Brilliant thoughts, I think, because yesterday I, uh, when I found out this has happened, I immediately thought of a friend who I've been talking to last week about how he uses WhatsApp to keep in touch with folks in Ghana. And then, so I think that you're right, Amber, like that's, that's going to be incredibly important to think about. And then the other thing, Devin, is I was talking to a friend of mine who's a welder yesterday, last night, and I mentioned it. And he was like, what are you talking about? Like I was at work doing things. I wasn't, you know, on social media. So smart thoughts from you. Right. Thanks so much for, um, for sitting and chatting with me for an interview about your article. Um, thanks. Absolutely. Thank thanks you. So thanks so much for having us.
I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Dr. Amber Buck and Dr. Devin Ralston. It was great to chat with them about their article, which is a phenomenal read. Reach out and let them know how you implement their heuristic in your own research. I know they'd be excited to hear from you. The Big Rhetorical Podcast Season 5 has only a few more episodes left, so make sure you are tuning in. I'll be back next week with another new interview. Until then, always be listening rhetorically. The Big Rhetorical Podcast is produced by Exalt Digital Media. Exalt Digital Media, not for profit. This podcast was recorded on the sacred lands of the Tuscarora people, and we recognize and respect the people of the Kahari, Eastern Band of Cherokee, Haliwa Saponi, Meheran, Okanichi, Band of Saponi, Saponi, and Wakamal Suen. Music for the Big Rhetorical Podcast is brought to you by DJ Lane, Grapes, and Liam Brocklehurst. <laughs>